0: And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. As I have reported in the past, uh, I get up very early, sometimes 2.30, 3.30, 4, but early. And uh, I open my computer, and in the past, the first things that I did uh, were to uh, read what Seth Godin might offer that day, uh, kind of philosophically uh, give me a view of the world that I tend to respect uh, in terms of his thinking, and uh, I would then read Ben Carlson's A Wealth of Common Sense, uh, and then I would look at emails. Well, I have added something new, I am now a fan of Wordle. And I imagine many of you are, and I am proud to say only this morning, just this morning, I was able to get my first uh, wordle word in two words. So for those who are joining me in this uh, adventure, uh, I hope you have had your two words as well. And you know what I'm hoping is that... uh, with the information we have to share on our site, the podcast, the videos, the, the books and articles, etc., that w- what it's going to lead to is a better return in the long term. And one of the reasons I'd like to believe that is that the information we provide I believe, allows you to dig a little deeper, maybe come to a better conclusion about what strategy, what portfolio is in your best interest, to make you more of an expert in terms of the information you have. I read Seth Godin this morning, and he said, the headline, The Things You Can't See. Do you remember all the elements you didn't used to notice? It might be the way you see topography now, or the tuning of an orchestra, or the alignment in the moldings of a house you're inspecting, or the way an engine sounds. Expertise is about learning new ways to notice. Often, once we learn to see, we assume we've always known. And that allows us to believe the things we can't see, we'll never be able to see. But it doesn't work that way unless we get complacent. There's always something just below the surface, the elements that most people simply don't notice. But we can if we choose. And I truly believe that our work is about taking people below the surface, helping people create a a belief system that will make them strong in their commitment to whatever buy-and-hold strategy uh, that they use. And so, one of the things that we do on an annual basis, and if you've been around lately, you've been feeling <laughs> the 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 impact of that work, or ignoring it. However, one may choice choose, but we, the first part of the year, as soon as we can get the documentation, the data that we need, we then go through a discussion about the choice of equity asset classes, about how we combine those equity asset classes, about how we combine those equity asset classes along with the right amount of fixed income, and what is the impact that on those who are in the accumulation stage of their life, and what is the impact for those that are in the distribution stage. And I suspect, to old-timers, this information, year after year, is pretty boring. But I can tell you, to the first-time person who's addressing this below the surface with us, those people, I think, need to have the most up-to-date. And the reason I believe it's important is because the more up-to-date the information is, the more believable it becomes. If I showed you these numbers from 1970 through 2005, you say, well, wait a minute. What's happened since then? Is there something they're hiding? Has it not worked as well since then? So even though it's a bit of a burden to do this every year, I believe we need to so that the next person who comes to our work will have a sense of, that it's current, that it's now, even though what we're trying to teach is that it isn't about now. It is about what is likely to happen over the long term. So, today, we are digging into the topic of flexible, variable distributions, and we will look at the implications of what it means, what it means in terms of how much money you need to use this kind of a strategy, and how different the outcome would be from the choice that we talked about recently, and that's fixed distributions. And I want to make sure, for those that have just come to this presentation that, uh, that you at least know why I would want you to listen to the one on fixed distributions because it assumes that you retire with what we call enough, not extra. You don't have twice as much money as you need or 50% more money than you need. You have enough if the market is normal even if it's not totally normal if it gets a little rough a little rougher than you expected you would still be able to take out some amount 3% to begin with with inflation adjustments or 4 or 5 or 6 and those of you who went through this with us before know that when you get up to around 5 or 6% taken out of a fixed distribution strategy with annual inflation adjustments. You run out of money sometimes before you run out of life. But there is what I have always considered, well, for many years considered, to be a true luxury as an investor in retirement. And that is to have more than enough to have some percentage more than enough that if the market gets rough and tumble, you will be able not only to adjust to the inflation that you might need, but that you would not be put at risk of running out of money before you run out of life. And you'll see that in the tables that I will show you today. And as we go through this, I just want you to know that in the buy and hold portion of our portfolio, my wife and mine's portfolio, that we, one, have oversaved. And I didn't quit taking an income and putting it away and investing it until we had. Sufficiently oversaved that we could choose this flexible or variable strategy that I'm about to dive into and take five percent a year out of that portfolio. And by the way, we take it out the first week of the year, that's our money for the year, and that not only includes the money we need to live on but. We try to give away about 30% of the money that we have uh, for the year to others. And admittedly, (laughs) quite a bit of it goes to the foundation that supports this uh, educational effort that we're making. But there are lots of other charities and nonprofits that my wife feels strongly about, but that money comes out of uh, this money that we take out for the year. So, so, not only do we take it out the first week of the year, not only are we taking out what we hope is enough for all the things that we want to do, but it allows us, in essence, to ignore the ups and downs of the market for at least 12 months and uh, and and just to live on that, oh, and I should mention, and to live on that money that goes into a short-term corporate bond fund, or I should say short-term high-grade bond fund. And I know we're going to get a little volatility in that pool, but over the years, Putting that money at the first of each year for that year into a short-term, high-grade bond fund, we use the Vanguard fund, will make us a better rate of return on average than we would get in a checking account or a money market account. And yes, in a year that the interest rates go up, then that bond fund is going to go down a little. It's never been down very much, but down a little. And we live with that. And that's the risk that we take in order over time to get a better return. It's just one of those forks in the road that we chose to take a little more risk than being in a risk-free money market account. So, we, if you look at the decisions that we had to make to get there, we had to choose equity asset classes, and we talk about that, of course, uh, ad nauseum. We had to choose how much in U.S., how much in international, how much in, short, uh, in, in large and small and value and growth. Then we had to choose how much in fixed income. And obviously, we had to choose how much that we would take out and when to take it out and how to invest for those distributions. So there's a whole bunch of little forks, well, big forks in the road that we have carefully thought through. I can't push those down your throat, but I can at at least explain why did we take the fork in the road that we did? So, as I said, today's work is about flexible or variable distributions. We've called them both over the years. But Remember, the fixed starts out like taking 4% at the first of the year, and then each year taking that original amount plus inflation, so that over the years, the distribution automatically builds. When we do this, on a flexible or variable basis we're not going to we're going to ignore the inflation the reason we're ignoring inflation is we know let's say our cost of living for the sake of discussion is $40,000 and yes if what we had was a million dollars to support that and we wanted to, to treat it like a fixed distribution, we would start by taking the 40000 and then the next year, regardless of what happened to the portfolio, we would adjust it by inflation. But with the variable or flexible distribution, we take, if it's 4%, Uh, At the beginning of each year, what was there at the end of the previous year? So if the market went from a million to a million two, then we'd be taking out 4% of a million two, or $48,000. That's the good news. The bad news is if the market goes down, W- enough that 4% of that number is 32000 guess what? That's what we have to live on. But if we have invested twice as much as we really need, and we're taking 4% of that number that's twice, Even though our cost of living is still only 40, we're taking out 4% of $2 million instead of 4% of one, which means we're taking out $80,000. And if the market went down and we're taking out 4% of 1.8 million, okay, we'd be taking out less, but it would be still way more money than we really need. And I'll tell you why this feels so good. I know, and you'll see it in the numbers, you'll say, maybe some will say, how can that be? How could by making this one decision, could the amount of money you have be so, so, so defended? Because this is a huge defensive position to take when you take less, when the market goes down. It preserves enough of the capital that when the market comes back, and you're going to see this, you get a huge, not only a huge reward, but you have a strategy that is more likely to last you for the rest of your life. You're going to see this in just a second. But before we go there, I want to make sure you understand where the the returns for the tables that we are using are coming from. And for those who follow our work, you have probably recently listened to the fine-tuning your asset allocation discussion where we share tables, and we'll have a link to that discussion and those tables uh, in the notes to this presentation. But we use a series of tables there. B1, B7, B8, B9. Those happen to be the table numbers. In each case, it's a combination of one equity strategy 100% equity, 90% equity, 80, 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10 and eventually on the left-hand side of the page all in bonds. So you could see with any of these different equity strategies, portfolios, what happened to them over the last 52 years. So you can see the ups and downs of all stocks, no stocks, 50% stocks, and it gives you, I think, a really good sense of what that ride might be like, not just with the S&P 500, But with what we call the ultimate buy and hold strategy, some big, some small, some value, some growth, some U.S., some international, some REITs, some emerging markets, 10 different equity asset classes. Too much to handle? Fine. You can have the worldwide four fund strategy, a great combination of big and small and value and growth with almost exactly the same return as the 10 funds. And then if you don't like internationals, fine. Throw out the bums and just hold U.S., which could be a combination of large and small and value and growth. And we show you the impact one year at a time, 1970 through 2021. And then we apply that to the assumption that you actually put money in the portfolio in 1970 and you took money out live on each year. By the way, this is a very different outcome than if you simply put the money in there at the beginning of 1970 and never took any out. It's also a very different outcome than if you put money in in 1970 on a, a, a monthly basis and you dollar cost averaged in over that 52 years, they all give a different end result because of the difference of when market went, in, money went in or when it came out. And if I had to point to one thing to look at in those tables that show the annual returns, it's at the bottom of the page. At the bottom of the page, well, above the bottom of the page, there's a line that says annualized returns. And what that shows is what was the compound rate of return on each one of those columns. So for example, the 50-50 stocks and bonds, how did it do with the S&P 500? 9.4% compounded. How did it do with the ultimate buy and hold? Six-tenths of 1% better, 10% how did it do with the worldwide four fund strategy 10.1% and finally how did it do with the four fund US portfolio and it turned out to be 10.2 so all three of the more broadly diversified portfolios had a better return and i just want you to realize that little differences here will show up in very, very big numbers, depending on what you decide to trust and how much you decide to take out. Now, the one thing that would be important for you to know, whether you're looking at the 50-50 column or the 60-40 or the 40-60, whatever, every one of those columns has a worse 12-month experience. In the case of the S&P 500, 50-50 stocks and bonds, you would have lost 23.2% in the worst 12-month experience. Not calendar year, but 12 months. The ultimate buy and hold was a loss of 27.8. The worldwide four-fund strategy, a loss of 27.2. The same, virtually the same. The four U.S. funds, a loss of of 25.6. So what you're basically saying is I want to take out a certain amount of money and I'm willing to be in a strategy that along the way is going to, maybe if I live long enough and the market is normal, going to expose me to a loss of whatever that number might be. And that does not say it couldn't be worse, of course. And I do think In order to really get the difference between the not only the different strategies, but the different amounts of how much you have in stocks and bonds, and the different amounts of how much you want to take out, all of those variables are very important. So, as we go through these tables, I want us to be looking. These, remember, these are the variable, flexible distributions. I want to look at 40% equity. I want to look at 50, and I want you to look at 60. Now, I'm going to focus on 50, but as you look at those tables yourself, I hope you will look at the range between 40, 50, and 60 in terms of, uh, uh, of, of the money that was paid out and the money that was left for others. And I realize as you look at that table, you're looking at 52 years worth of data that you're not likely in many cases to live 52. I'm 78. I'm not going to live 52 years. I would think that eh, 10 might be reasonable. 15, if I would, could still know where I, where I am, I would, I'd be happy with that. But I think sometimes it's interesting to look at the 10-year periods. And why do I say look at the 10-year periods? It's because there are there's the period from 70 to 79, and then 80 to 89, and 90 to 99, et cetera, that you could see what the impact of the market was over that period of time. And I'll I'll point that out uh, so you can see how different. Uh, those can be. But I still want to make that point. We're, we want to be aware of the 40, the 50, and the 60% equity columns. So let's start with table E1.3. Now I know some of you are out taking a walk and you're not sitting there looking at these tables. So I'm going to do my best to keep you involved here. Because I'm looking at a whole lot of numbers, but I can tell you that these groups of columns are broken down into how would you have done with 40% S&P 500 and 60% in bonds, then another column with 50% S&P 500 and 50% in bonds, and yet another column with 60% S&P 500 and 40% in bonds. And then, for the the, the sake of looking at this in a way that you're not likely to use it, but just to give you perspective of kind of what's under the skin on this thing, and that is to look at an all-equity portfolio. Because there are a lot of people who do stay all equities their entire life, and you need to know if you have any sense of envy what those people might be going through and ask, would that be comfortable for me? Because there's no question when we look at the market for the long term that equities, whether you're a first-time investor or you're in retirement, has paid huge rewards, of course, until they don't, and then you got to make sure you be able to make it through those very, very rough times. So here's what I see on this table that I think is important. First of all, I can see that each of those particular combinations has a year-end balance, and then next to that column is the distribution that was made that year. Remember, the distribution is going to be a percentage of whatever was left over at the end of the previous year and ignoring inflation, And what we've done here is also showed a cumulative amount, how much was paid out over time. So here's what I'd like to have you notice for sure, is that when you come out of the gate in 1970, uh, and uh, you live the first few years are just fine, but 73 and 74 were really tough. And I can tell you that if you were a hundred percent in the S and P 500, and you had started with a million dollars, and you had taken out thirty thousand the first year, a little over thirty in the second year, thirty-three point five thousand in the third year, and then thirty-eight thousand seven hundred in the fourth year, it felt like you were on top of the world. But then, in the in the fifth year, the value of the portfolio is down set to $761,337 and your spouse is saying, hey, wait a minute, I thought this was supposed to be the magic path to to retirement fun and uh, freedom and certainly did not expect to lose that kind of money. What do you do? Well, I can tell you what a lot of people have done in the past is they bail out. And the one thing we don't want you to do is if you've got a portfolio that you are comfortable with and and, and, and and in terms of getting the money out that you need or that you want, we don't want you to be put in a position where you feel like you've got to go hide from the market. And as I look at the 50-50 strategy, I notice that what it got down to when the going got the toughest was one million seven thousand two hundred and three dollars. Yes, you came down from a high of about $1,255,000, but you still had as much as you started with. And that gave you hope. Now maybe it won't give you hope because maybe you see that think that's going to go on forever. But I can tell you this, at the end of the first ten years, the S&P 500 fought its way back to have about 1.3 million, but the 50-50 strategy had almost 1.5 million. So not only had you taken less risk, but you got more money out of the portfolio. In fact, the 50/50 strategy took out a total of 356,000 plus, while the S&P 500 took out over 321,000. So everything is coming up roses and hopefully you're still on course. And by the end of the next decade, the S&P 500 it comes roaring back and ends that decade with 4.8 million versus 4.5 for the 50-50. And the next decade, the S&P 500 ends with 18.8 million versus your 11 million. But did you ever for a second think that you were going to end up with 11 million? I would guess not. It is a 50-50 strategy, and the warning here is that one of the reasons that it did so well, yes, the stock market did well, but so did the bond market over that period of time. They got into some very high interest rates that that, that drove the market, particularly if you were in short to intermediate bonds like we recommend, that— uh, drove to very fine returns in the fixed income portion. And then if I drop right down to the bottom of the page, what I see is at the end of 52 years, you would have taken uh, almost $11.5 million out and have left $21.6 million in the 50-50 strategy. On the other hand, the S&P 500 ended up with $47.3 million after paying out about 16.9, uh, $15.9 million. So there was a huge reward to those people who were willing to take the risk of losing a very large portion of what they had. And, and I think we have to be careful not to overcommit to equities because we're not sure. This is one of the challenges an advisor has, but is a huge challenge for me because I'm not your advisor. I'm not having a conversation with you. I'm not helping you think through this. You've got to do this on your own. That's part of you being a do-it-yourself investor. The other thing I think is important to note about E1.3, the table that shows the flexible distributions uh, for the S&P 500 based on a 3% starting amount, 3%, and then adjusting for inflation. The compound rate of return for the 40% equity was 9%. The compound rate of return for the 50 was 94 The compound rate of return for the 60 was 9.7. Did it make any difference? Well, it does make a huge difference. This is one of the points that we make. Remember, we talk about how important a half a percent is, and I'm not going to go out 52 years because that number just is is unrealistic for most of us because we're not going to live that long, but I can. I can go out. If you'd like, I could go out 30 years. And with the 40% strategy, equity wise, you would have ended up with about 9.8 million. With the 50%, 11.1 million. With the 60%, 12.5 million. As terms of how much was paid out, With forty percent, three million; with fifty percent, three point one million; with sixty percent, three point two million. Now I bring this up because I talk to young people about the implications of making an extra half of one percent, and say it's a each half a percent is potentially another million dollars. And I just want you to notice. If you are a new retiree and the likelihood is you will live for another 30 years, this choice between 40 and 50 and 60, each one of those is a million-dollar decision. How much you take out, you will find, is a million-dollar decision in just a second. Because as I move to the next table, this is E1.4, The only change I'm going to make here, still going to be flexible, still going to start with a million dollars, still going to uh, take whatever that that 4% of whatever that year-end value is, that's the difference, is instead of taking 3%, taking 4%. In other words, of that original million dollars, this person is going to get 10,000 more to live on. And what that person probably doesn't realize, is that ten thousand dollars instead of thirty makes a huge difference. So if you want to be real conservative and you've got more money than you need, and three percent feels good, I want you to notice that when we took out three percent, okay, and I'm, I'm just I'm gonna look over the uh the 30-year basis, okay, over that period. And I'm only going to look at the 50-50, just for the sake of keeping this short. If you remember, we had, with a 3% distribution variable at the end of 30 years, we would have taken out 3.1 million and were left with 11.1 million. By taking out... 1% more, 4% instead of 3. You are left over, you have left over 8.1 million instead of 11.1 million. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is you took out about another 350,000 more to live on because you took out more money. But you're leaving less to others. And if we get all the way down to the bottom of the page, you would see that the 50/50 strategy uh, retires if you want to call it that with 12.6 million dollars as opposed to 21.6 million with the 3%. So that decision to take out an extra 10,000 is a big deal. And uh, and so uh, again that, that's what these tables are for is so that you, you can get a sense of what these changes might be. Now, the next table, again, S&P 500, I think it's a killer table. I mean, it gives me some information that would give me a ton of hope that I'm doing the right thing if I take out 5%, because people will say, oh, don't take out 5%, that's too much. You'll go broke if you take out 5%. Well, it turns out when you take out 5% on a flexible or variable basis that you take out less when the market goes down. Remember, we're not adjusting for inflation. We're taking a cut in pay. And just to give you the bottom line, well, I'm not even going to talk the bottom line. You may not remember, but when we did the fixed distribution with the S&P 500 and took out 5%, on a fixed basis by 2004 after about 34 35 years you were broke with a 50 50 strategy that same 5% strategy but making it flexible instead of fixed not only leaves you with 5.3 million at age the same at at, at in 2004 instead of being broke but sh- you you leave your heirs about about 5.3 million and you will have taken out about 4.8 million and you got lots of money to keep going using that flexible variable distribution as a defensive investor is just huge now when we go to the uh, and I have to go here because I my wife and I we're talking, now we're in our 70s. And, and, and we've been very, well, we've lived a good life, but we've still been frugaler than we could have. We could have spent more. Of course, you never know. You don't know that. And because I have been the person afraid of the future, and she has been the person who's not afraid of the future, you know, I've kind of held us back maybe from what we could have spent. But we're looking at the possibility of going to a 6% distribution. I'm 78, and she's younger, but she's still in her 70s. And yeah, if, I, if we take out six, we've got a table for this, table E1.6, if we took out and we're 50-50, it would look to me like in uh, almost every decade, uh, we would look really good. Well, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, I'm looking at the fifty fifty strategy, and I'm noticing that period ending in nineteen ninety-nine, we had four point three million dollars, and by the end of two thousand nine, we are down to three million. We lost a quarter of the value of the portfolio being in just the S&P 500 in the equity part of our portfolio. And our annual income, in 2000, we took out 259000 but by 2009, we're down to 173000 So it looks like being 50-50, if you live through the wrong 10 years, you could suffer a setback. Well, we've got some good news and it's not a it's not good news that I can attach the word guaranteed to. Okay? I want to make that very clear. Okay, we're looking at table E7.3. Uh E7.3 represents the ultimate buy and hold strategy. And uh, what I want to do is I want to take a look at that now you may remember that the ultimate buy and hold strategy had a better rate of return than the S&P 500 the 50-50 strategy instead of making uh, what was it, 9% uh, or excuse me 9.4% made 10% so it it made more money but how was that reflected well, in the case of the uh, 3% distribution, the 50-50 strategy, instead of ending up with $11 million at the end of 30 years, uh, in this particular case, you end up with about uh, $13 million. And instead of taking out $3.1 million, you take out about 4.5 million, so that additional diversification uh, was really good for the portfolio. Now I'll tell you where it's really good. Let me go back to the five percent distribution that we used with the S and P 500, and let's I'm going to focus on that terrible ten years. They called it the lost decade. For the S&P 500. And during that decade, if I look at the 5% distribution from 1999 to 2009, you start with uh, 5, point, well, let's call it 6 million, and you end that decade with 4.7 million. So that was Punishing it was you still had lots of money but it was a pretty big loss on the other hand because of the broader diversification of the four fund strategy i'm looking at table e8.5 you start with 7.4 million and you end with 8.4 million so that additional diversification, adding the small, adding the value, adding the international, was huge in terms of uh, of, of helping to protect against the, the problem that you can often have anytime you have a single asset class, which in the case of large cap blend, that's the S&P 500. And then I want to take you to table e eight. Uh, Dot three, Uh, this is the worldwide four-fund equity portfolio for the equity portion. If you don't know what that combination is, it's U.S. large-cap blend and international large-cap value and international small-cap blend and U.S. small-cap value so it is basically the same balance of large and small and value and growth except doing it with fewer funds and ignoring the emerging markets and ignoring the reits and the and as we noted before the return is almost the same as the uh, ultimate buy and hold 10 fund strategy so you know that has Put a lot of pressure on people who don't like doing 10 funds to at least consider the possibility of going to the four fund strategy. Well, here's what we see with the four fund strategy worldwide going through that same period. It ended up with about the same return uh, as the ultimate buy and hold. I'm looking at the 5% worldwide four fund equity portfolio ends that 10 years with 8.4 million as does the ultimate buy and hold strategy. So everything uh, looks almost, I mean, it's not exact, but it's pretty doggone close and a lot less work. One of the most common questions I get about these different strategies. Uh, particularly the worldwide strategy versus the U.S.-only four-fund strategy. Is is there really an advantage to the internationals as part of the portfolio? And uh, we could judge that. We could say, well, let's look at the end of uh, the 52-year period. We could, for the sake of discussion here, since we've been talking about 5% extraction, uh, see how the how the four-fund the four strategy worldwide held up compared to the U.S. only. And it looks like, well, doesn't seem to make much difference at the end of the 52 years, the U.S. four-fund strategy, and I'm looking at the 5% distribution, I'm looking at the 50-50, has a ba- a balance of ten point eight million having paid out thirteen million four hundred and seventy seven thousand dollars uh, on the other hand the uh, uh, the worldwide instead of ten point eight million is left with ten point two million ah well advantage u s only instead of a, a a total value at the end of the period it turns out that the distributions with the worldwide were 14.5 million versus 13.5 million now wait a minute how can this be how can it be that the worldwide portfolio was left with less money but paid out more. And what it's all about and this is one of the difficult aspects about trying to make this decision worldwide or all US. The the reality is that at the end of the day the sequence of returns which we'll just call luck are have such a huge impact on what the value of your investments will be. And what happened in this particular 52-year period is in the early years, the addition of the internationals was helpful. So, for example, at the end of the first 20 years, the worldwide four-fund strategy was worth $5.3 million the four fund U.S. was worth about four million. Well, that's a big difference, and the distributions for the worldwide were a little over, let's call it two point one million, versus one point eight million for the U.S. four funds. So it would look there like you're better off with the worldwide. Uh, on the other hand, as I said before, at the end of the whole period, it it turned out that there was a small advantage in terms of what was left over uh, went to the U.S., but you would have had less money to spend. Just the way the sequence of, of returns happened uh, had that impact on these different strategies. I would say... The difference is, is minuscule, but I can tell you, having been through a period when I was broadly diversified, like during the period from 19, uh, from 1999 through 2009, during that decade, the lost decade that people experienced with the S&P 500 and even did worse with peer growth indexes, uh, it felt good to have a more diversified portfolio because the returns during that particular period of time were much, much better. So when I think about the bottom line for this kind of a discussion, uh, my sense is that uh, we've got so many variables here uh, that I can understand where it would be confusing. But let me just highlight them, how much you take out, uh, and the less you take out, the more defensive you're going to be. And the, to the extent that you, if the money lasts you for your lifetime, the less you take out, the more your heirs will have to spend. Then there is whether you take out the money uh, at the beginning of the year or monthly or at the end of the year. Now, how can you take it out at the end of the year? Well, what you could do and we've got tables that we're working on right now. You could, as a part of your planning for retirement, build up a separate pool of money so that you don't touch your investments for the first year. You live off of that amount of money, that 40000 or whatever that amount is. And then you let your portfolio grow, all of it, for that entire first year. And you will see the difference. And it is an amazing difference in just waiting until the end of the year to take that first distribution. We'll show those to you in the coming weeks. So that's when you take the money, how much you take, what the portfolio is, how much in equities, how much in fixed income, what equities, obviously. Obviously. All of these things are important. Now, we're doing our best to make this possible for you to pick through the bones and look what's right for you. But I know that many of you will probably need the help of, of, of a professional. And my hope is that you will use a professional that will be aware of the implications of these tables. If they don't have these Kinds of tables, then either they should make them or you could show them hours and help you make that decision. Obviously, the decision to be in index funds versus actively managed, huge. Low expenses versus high, huge. Tax free or tax deferred versus taxable, huge. All important decisions that change your financial life, and I can tell you that I have met thousands of people who have little to no knowledge of any of those things in their portfolio, and they are as happy as can be because when you ask how they've done, they say, we've done just fine. When you ask them what kinds of investments do they have, they say, well, we're in, we're in mutual funds. If you ask them, oh, what kind of families do you do you use? Uh, It is not unlikely the answer will be, you know, I'm not sure, I can't remember. But that's because they have an advisor. And this work that we're here to do today with you is to help you be a do-it-yourselfer so that not only will you be able to talk about the mutual funds you own and the expenses and the diversification, the asset allocation and all of that, but you'll be able to share it with others in your family. And I think that's a huge bonus. And I know I've taken you for longer than you probably wanted to go today, but I will tell you, I think it's important information. I hope it helps. You know how to get a hold of me, Paul at PaulMerriman.com. And we have a little more work to do in this regard. If we haven't done an update on the two funds for life. We need to do that. Uh, we haven't had the update on uh, uh, the portfolio, and uh, we'll be talking about that in a, in a discussion with Chris and with Daryl. And so I hope you'll keep coming back. We're here to serve. Let us know what we can do to serve better. And thank you for all that you do for us in sharing our information with others. Those of you who are kind enough to donate to our 501c3 uh, foundation, we appreciate that. Uh, and, we, and we'd love to hear from you and the impact that we've had uh, on your financial life. It's important to us.